You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Um, I am standing or sitting in for Dan Natterman, who is in Aruba. Welcome to Live from the Table, the official podcast for the Comedy Cellar on Sirius Radio. We have um, two very exciting guests tonight. First of all, uh, the host, Noam Dwarman, the owner of the Comedy Cellar, an all-around just lovely, charming fellow. <laughs> Hi everybody, and, and I'm not one of the guests, but go ahead. I said the host. I know. Um, and then we also have Margalit Fox, Woo! who is considered one of the foremost explanatory writers and literary stylist and American journalist. She was trained as a linguist and was a senior writer at the New York Times. As a former member of the newspaper's celebrated obituary news department, she wrote the front page public send-offs of some of the leading cultural figures of our age. She's also the author of three books. And um, I'm so excited to ask you so many questions. And we also have one of my all-time favorite people and comics, Danny Cohen. Hey. Who is a regular at the Comedy Cellar and um, Renaissance man. And Joseph irregular in most other places. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> right. <laughs> and he has a beautiful line of ties called Danny Cohen Ties that we will share with you. You can watch us on YouTube and you can also listen. But if you're listening, then you already know that. Welcome everyone to the show. Okay, we could we could redo that intro. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> it was her first her first time doing it, so yeah, it was uh, pretty good. So, uh, uh, Ms. Ms. Fox, should I call you Ms. Fox? You can call me anything you want. My friends call me Margo. You can call me Margo uh, if you well, want. Well, actually, you know, my, my, um, I know the name Margalit because I don't know if you ever heard of an Israeli singer named Margalit Ankori. Have you ever heard that name? Sure, it's a very common name there. Not at all here. I was born and raised on Long Island and could never get license plates for my bicycle with my name on it. <laughs> Wait, were your parents, are your parents Israeli? No, but they lived in Haifa for four years in the 50s. They had a one-way ticket courtesy of the then junior senator from Wisconsin, a name that then as now has a lot of bad residents. I was born after things had blown over enough for them to come back, but for better or worse, I got the souvenir. So I, I, you, you came on my radar because um, Steven Pinker tweeted out uh, that um, actually it was a you had written an obituary about uh, the, the the what is it the famous Randy or you know James Randy the, the amazing Randy the amazing the famous Randy. Magician debunker and skeptic who um you know, yeah who was he the, he's the guy who had that standing um, hundred thousand dollars anybody who could stump him or something like that right anybody who could demonstrate empirically the actual existence of claimed paranormal phenomena right. needless to say the prize surprise surprise was never claimed 
So, so he 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 had tweeted that that uh, he says Marguerite Fox is by far by far our most stylish obituary writer. Now, and I had recently read his book um, on writing, and he's kind of a hero of mine. And then Tyler Cowen also uh, is one of your admirers. And I said, my goodness, I need to have this woman on my podcast if I can get her because you don't get any higher praise than Steven Pinker and Tyler Cowen. I would pinch myself if those two guys. Uh, we're, we're crazy about me. So anyway. Well, I'll pinch myself. <laughs> and my training is in linguistics. So I always like people named Noam. So <laughs> oh, yeah. are you a Chomsky fan? Um, he revolutionized the field. I know the linguistics Chomsky better than the political Chomsky, although I have little to no argument with his politics. How could one these days? Um, <laughs> And I just want to put this out there to your viewers slash listeners. I have a scenario on January 21st, 46 is going to have to get 45 out of there by shooting him with a tranquilizer dart from an elephant gun. Don't you agree? I think this is an actually plausible scenario. Periel agrees with you. Actually, let's start there. How do you, how would you separate your feelings? What if you had to write, what if Donald Trump uh, drop dead tomorrow, and you had to write his obituary. Could you could you do it in a disinterested way? Well, needless to say, for any sitting president, we'd be a fool not to have an advance obit in the can because advance we have probably two thousand of them. I still say we, even though I retired early from the paper uh, two years ago. But it's like leaving the church or a shul. You know, it's always we, even if you've left the fold. Um, but let's say one had to write him on deadline. I've written about, this is, a, this is a very extreme claim. I've written actually about even worse people than that, which is hard <laughs> to believe. I wrote the new, page one news obit of Charles Manson. Arguably, no way. But arguably ever so slightly worse, ever so slightly. But I, I would um, argue that Charles Manson is an easier task because he's um, uncontroversially evil. Well, but here's the thing, uh, and this is something that members of the public, our subjects, families, and above all, journalists have to remember is what major papers do in the way of news obits are not eulogies. A small town paper, which has a different constituency, different mandate, and an even more retrenched staff than a big city daily paper, of course, they have the resources only to take what the family or the funeral parlor sends them, put it in the paper, maybe under a byline, maybe not, uh, and run it as news. And isn't it a coincidence that everyone in these towns who died was a saint? Everyone died surrounded by his or her adoring family and dogs, and a lot of them died doing what they loved. What are the chances? For us, th the mandate is different. These are news articles straight down the line, their profiles. The only salient difference is their profiles of someone who can't call you up screaming the next day, although God <laughs> knows their families can and do, but they have to be done warts and all. And so, yes, we've done the uncontroversially evil Charles Manson, yet there were things in his story, uh, not to make a sob story out of it, but things that I found while going through the clips in my research that were devastatingly poignant. Do you know what his name at birth was? No, I'm, oh, no. Close, weirdly close. No name Maddox. 
and that tells you all you need to know about how wanted he was. He was the child of a 16-year-old unwed prostitute mother, and so that's a really, really crappy start in life. It doesn't excuse anything, but it has a certain explanatory value for us as journalists. Wow. And, tr and Trump's dad was apparently very hard on him, too. Right. So, so says his niece, Mary. Yeah. Um, and we have no, who is, of course, a trained clinical psychologist. So she really has a profoundly interesting double take on what he's like psychologically. I so uh, so I, okay. You say that there's a lot of um, stuff in the can, as it were. Um, uh, but are those dry recitations of facts, or what? What? How close to a, a publishable, publishable obituary already exists for Donald Trump? I can't speak to Trump. I didn't work on it, and we we at the Times are not allowed to comment on the content of any forthcoming news article. And of course, in advance, Obit is kind of the ultimate forthcoming news article. Um, so I can't even tell you for whom we have advance Obits on file. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Um, <laughs> but you can pretty much bet that if you're the president or the king or queen of something, an old time silver screen star, uh, you know, Nobel laureate, Pulitzer laureate, you can pretty much expect that we have you. And ideally, they are all written but the top the who what where and when because obviously the who what where and when haven't happened yet so so for instance i i'm trying to remember for the amazing randy you had some line in there which i you said he was an illusionist but he was more of a disillusionist or something like that which i thought was a great line thank um, you that would have been written it presuming you had done his obituary in the past which maybe you didn't but just for the sake of argument even those those clever lines and jokes would be written maybe sometimes years before the person dies. All clever lines are mine and mine alone. Now, um, for all of us, I, I retired from the paper in 2018. I my last two years there, I negotiated a contract where I just wrote advanced obits. So I was spared the onus of breaking news daily deadlines, which is otherwise about 90% of the job. And it's thrilling, but it, appropriately takes the life out of you after a while. <laughs> so after I, I'd done that 1400 times I thought no more I'm doing advances so trading the intense pressure of dailies for the gentle swell of advances where you have the luxury of taking a couple of days or even a week to research someone instead of writing him or her on deadline and so Randy I probably wrote in 2017 2018 and again everything that you saw in the paper or on the website under my byline had been written the only thing I didn't have to do because I was no longer there and some nice young news assistant probably did it or any one of the colleagues can do it was call whoever the source is for the death I think in this case it was um, the James Randy Foundation and get you know, where he died, confirm his age, what the cause was, etc. And then li list any survivors, because that has to be done at the last minute. Otherwise, occasionally a survivor, a putative survivor can predecease the subject. So those are the only two things, ideally, that have to be done on the day with an advance obit. I have one more question. I'll turn it over to the other people who want to ask questions. Why, um, or maybe this is something you thought of, why do you have to do why do you have to do this for a newspaper? Wouldn't it be awesome to just 
you're such a great writer and you're so funny to write a book of obituaries for people who've already died just as a as a fun as kind of a way of teaching history in a way well my pal mo rocca just did that uh oh, give him a nice little plug he has a book out with the wonderful name mobituaries that is based on his mobituaries podcast he and i did two live sessions of the podcast um i think the the summer before this one the last summer when people were allowed to go out and have fun uh and it was a tremendous time and very shortly after that he came out with the book and they are just as you say for everything from these wonderful you know sitcom stars of the 70s that we all remember who you know child stars that wound up pumping gas to um non-human subjects i think there's one in there for a tree or something like that he he casts a broader net than we can and does um the death of institutions more generally I got to get that book. That's, my, my kids might enjoy that. So go yeah, ahead, Cariel. Oh, Danny, go ahead. No, Mobitionary is a great name for Mo. Um, no, I got out. My father died when I was five, so I got out of that one. Mm -hmm. Now I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, wow, you know, do I need to start writing something for my mom who's 85 and she's doing great. She's not going anywhere, but I'm wondering, should I start writing something now? Ken O'Hara, puh, puh, puh. We know what that means. I, I would. I mean, look. On I one would hand, say not. On one hand, I'm listening to you. I'm like, wow. You know, I guess it really is important. You write, want to write something beautiful. It'll take time, and I can always polish it. But at the, on, the, on the other hand, as a as a as a comic, as a writer that writes from the heart, I know that when the time comes and she goes, I'm going to be flooded with so many emotions that I yeah. think a beautiful eulogy is going to come out naturally. So I don't know, I'm asking. And it may or may not because of course, and I've been through this with both my parents, you're gonna be exhausted. You're good, the phone's gonna ring every 10 seconds. So one is not at one's best at this time. And I've been on both sides of the process. My own father was a scientist. He had a news obit in the Times and it was very valuable for me to be, it's like uh, shrinks in training have to log a certain number of hours in analysis themselves to know what it's like. As for your mother, Danny, I would say, don't even think about source material for a future obit, but get out the notebook, get out the tape recorder, get her life down, get her stories. It's that Foxfire kind of thing that we were all doing in the 70s. Um, people my age were all doing in the 70s where you go around and interview your elders because they're treasures. Just do that. That's great. That's a good piece. Of you know, it me, I, I did that actually with my grandmother who had an amazing life story. You know, as a stowaway from Israel to Palestine, I mean, mm. from the Russia to Palestine and all these things. And there was a flood in my house and it was all destroyed. It was all destroyed, including everything I ever did in college and everything. But that there are a few recordings that um, it, it breaks my heart. There was old recordings of me and my father when I was a little boy, but the, my grandmother telling her whole life story on an audio cassette is destroyed. Anyway. Actually, what then I will amend that, get everything digitized and put it in the cloud. Yeah. And this, I'm showing my age now, what I was going to say, you could also do this a la suspenders and a belt, put the original tapes in a safety deposit box in the bank. I and know. You know, the, the, the flood was such a fluke 
You remember those, you know, in the 70s, they would take those big spools, like those Con Edison spools. People would use them as coffee tables. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it was this sort of, um, it's what academic families did to show how au courant they were. So somebody, somebody threw one of those big Con Edison spools down the gutter on the street corner that my father lived in and completely oh. stopped up the sewage for the oh entire street and the entire basement, like an eight foot ceiling or seven foot ceiling basement, filled all the way such that when my father was going downstairs, he, he stepped into his basement, went to turn the lights on and, and then was submerged in water. He could have drowned to death. Oh my amazing God. story. Uh, but so everything was destroyed. It was such a fluke. Anyway, that's kind of the ultimate Dafka moment, drowning to death. I'll say redundantly, drowning to death while looking for source materials for your own obituary. <laughs> and what a great obituary that would have made, right? Yeah, uh, doing what he loved. Actually, there was my father had an obit in the Times, but um, he wasn't important enough for you to write. Was that Stephen Holden? Was that the guy's name? Sure. Yeah, he, he wrote my father's obituary. It was very dry, just the facts. Well, listen, it's it, not a question of importance. I'm a slightly later cohort than Stephen Holden, so he was doing it long before, probably long before I ever joined the paper. I joined the paper in 94 and didn't join Obits until 2004. So, right, so you know, My father died in 2003, so it had been right when there, you started. Missed right, me so, by one year. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Um, Actually, but you, you one... I have a quote here from you. It says, not, you know what, I'm going to admit, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, but, and so it's the Frisson makers, mm -hmm. history's backstage players, whom we writers love best of all. The unsung heroes and heroines are rarely household names, yet in ways large and small, they have changed history. They are people who, for good or ill, have put a wrinkle in the social fabric. Tell us about some of those, uh, your, your favorite obituaries, people like that. Right. What we say is forget the presidents and kings and queens. They're important, but it's kind of required reading. It's like taking your vitamins. Uh, everyone pretty much knows what to expect, and it's sort of like reading a history book. The people obit writers love best, and people the Times does, I think, better than anyone, are these unsung men and women no man or woman on the street would know their names, but they've had an idea, written a book, invented something, you know, all because they took a different route to work one day in 1942 that changed the world. One of my favorites, and it's totally appropriate for this season, is a humble home economist from Indiana named Ruth Seems. Her name is spelled S-I-E-M-S. -E now, why would we do a humble home economist from Indiana. Not to sound like a snobbish city slicker, but normally that wouldn't rise to the level of newsworthiness, except that while she was employed for one of the big food companies, it was either General Foods or General Mills, Ruth Seams invented a dehydrated bread cube product to which one could add water in a pot on the stove, stovetop stuffing. Ah. God bless her. She died in November, and we were able to run her obit on the Wednesday of Thanksgiving week. And just that little bit of reporting you have to do to show what a cultural totem something is. I called the food company and said, so how many boxes of the stuff do you normally sell Thanksgiving week? Would anyone care to guess? Danny? 
400 million people in this country of around. So let's just say, um, I'm going to guess, I'm going to say 200 million. <laughs> You're way high, actually, but it's a lot. It was something like 30 million. So, oh, 30 million. okay. Uh, right. Now, no, I'm sorry. Now, you <laughs> no, Danny, Danny, that went from, you. It, the bubble over my head went from thinking, wow, he's so smart. So, what an idiot. And then, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that is so on point. He's I, counting I the math. Oh, yeah, that's more than 300 million right. people. He's calculating it, and he says, two thirds of them. Two thirds of them. <laughs> Can I tell you that I swear to God, the second I heard you say 400 million people in this country, I go definitely 200 million. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, but you're not stupid. Only one person at a time can be stupid. We'll let the boy be stupid. That's a lot of stuffing. It's a lot of stuffing. And again, all because some sweet lady that one has never heard of work something out, you know, at her desk at a company one day, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So those are the people we absolutely love. Another one, and the Times put him on page one, was a man with the wonderfully perfect name of Don Featherstone. He was a sculptor. He trained as a sculptor. Well, you can't make a living as a sculptor. So heeding the advice from the graduate, he went into plastics. He worked for a plastics company in Massachusetts, and in the late 1950s, he designed a pink flamingo made out of plastic that you could stick in the ground. And as we said in the obit, he literally changed the landscape of mid-century America, the inventor of the lawn flamingo. Who oh would have thought it? Yeah. Now, did these people, I mean, did he, did he, for example, become very wealthy and successful during the course of his life? Like, did he live to see the success of the Pink Flamingo or? Well, he certainly lived to see it. And his own yard was a, a, literally an ocean of flamingos. You can look up the Obed on nytimes.com and there is the most wonderful photo, full color, which we ran in color on a one that day, and it's on the website of him in his own yard, surrounded by a an ocean of pink flamingos. It's absolutely great. Ta-da! Oh, oh wow. aren't you wonderful? Screen share, yeah, and wearing a Hawaiian shirt of pink flamingo fabric, no less. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so great, and. Um, so he certainly lived because he died only a few years ago. So he lived to see 50 years worth of his product flying around the world. But wow. when you work for a company, he and the stovetop stuffing lady, it's work for hire. Uh, so you don't get, you get gratified, but you don't generally get rich. Oh, that is criminal. So, oh, everything's That's criminal the way the American capitalist system <laughs> works, my dear. Feel free to overthrow it. I give it to you. Thank uh, there's you. There's that Chomsky. There's that Chomsky again. Um, uh, so, some of the other people I've, I'm looking up now. You wrote about the man, or I presume it's a man because I'm a sexist. The man who invented the frisbee. Yes, uh, the man who invented the frisbee, which uh, started life as one of his mother's tin pie plates. Um, which he threw around until it got too battered to, for her to use to make pies with. I don't think she was pleased. Uh, and again, it's this very mid-century ideal, plastics. So eventually he found somebody who could manufacture it in plastic. It started life with the rather infelicitous name of the Pluto Platter. And you sort of can't say 
see somebody saying to their kids, let's go out and play Pluto platter. It's hard to say. <laughs> um, and again, presto, the Frisbee. He changed the world. Some, let's see, I'm, I'm taking this from uh, an article here. The Pet Rock. Oh, the Pet Rock. One of the things we love about doing obits is that you really can use an individual's life, if you're lucky, as a kind of lens on the wider culture. And here was this lens on this 70s kind of suburban culture where people were prosperous. Maybe they were a little bored too. And someone who was a marketing genius could literally take a stone out of the ground, put a little fuzzy nest around it, put it in a box, and people paid money for this thing. So that to me is echt 1970s. So it was a really, really interesting way to be able to use this one man's obit to talk about that whole period. Can I ask here? a question? Yeah. When you when you were um, told, or I'm not sure exactly how it works, that you were going to write Charles Manson's obituary, I mean, how were you... Is that, I mean, I would imagine that part of it's very exciting to do something like that. And I listened or I read something that you said, or maybe it was on the mobituaries that I watched that you sent me, that the, your first job or that you have to approach these um, as be, being agnostic. Right. You have to be straight down the line. Um, Manson is probably, you know, the most purely evil person I've written about, another one, uh, Sheriff Jim Clark, the great club-wielding enforcer of segregation in the Jim Crow South, you know, batterer of heads. Um, he was a person. How did he get to be where he is? Was it purely that he was a product of his time and place? Were there, so the whole, um, the whole issue of causation, what, how does someone get from A to B to C in his life? How much is free will? How much is just pure blind fate? That, those things are absolutely fascinating to explore. And Obits, although they were stigmatized for years, I think because of people's primal fear of death, they're the best beat in journalism because they're the most purely narrative. You're taking someone from cradle to grave and that gives you this built-in narrative arc so you're paid to tell stories who doesn't love to be told stories yeah i mean i feel like it's so fascinating that job has to be just one of the most interesting ways to write and learn about people is there anything sort of i mean macabre about it or were you attracted to was this something that like always fascinated you while you were, you know, a college student or did you read a lot of obituaries or is it one of those stories like a lot of us have that you just sort of fell into it and. I just sort of fell into it. And in fact, I just sort of fell into daily journalism because I've always been a long form writer. I'm convinced that writers come out of the womb wired for short form or long form, and the short form people go into newspapers, and in my day, long form people write books, but just through a series of accidents, when I got out of journalism school, which I went back to when I was 30, I wound up working for two New York papers, the late lamented New York Newsday of blessed memory, and then I went to the Times. 
um, I spent my first 10 years at the Times cleaning up other people's work. I was an editor at the Times Sunday Book Review, and it's a great job, but I started to get increasingly depressed. And as I've written, I was afraid that all they would put on my tombstone was she changed 50,000 commas into semicolons. And <laughs> I to write, it wasn't enough. So I wrote my way onto obits, which was historically the job nobody wants in the newsroom, in any newsroom. I wrote my way on because there is this crying need to build up the stockpile of advance obits. Ironically, the very first advance obit I wrote in 1995, the subject is still alive and damn him, he's still productive. So uh, when I was there, I would have to update it every six months, every time he wrote a book or did something else. You know the best the best Netflix you know the best Netflix series are always the the before from what happened before, and then you watch how they became what they were. Exactly. So so, so, so let me ask you. So this this so I don't know if you're just being very gracious. The, uh, um, this this Mo Rocca book, he's kind of a a comedian, right? He he's like a his book is probably um, leans on the on being funny. Yeah. But your, what you're describing has much more depth, depth than that, depth than that, much more depth and pathos yeah. and, um, and uh, psychological studies and, as you said, uh, free will. And um, so it seems to me that somebody still has to write that book. It would really, really be interesting to see a, 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 short, a, a book of short obituaries of famous people um, written with your with your point of view and your expertise i'm not you know I, I would really enjoy a book like that it's interesting i'm sort of out of the game now uh, although i miss my colleagues tremendously and i miss you know being affiliated with a great newspaper uh, i don't miss the onus of daily deadlines and i very deliberately worked full-time at the paper and wrote each of my first three books. Uh, basically, it was like having two demanding full-time jobs at the same time for 15 years to get to the point where I could just write books, which is what I'm doing now. Uh, that said, because when I retired, I left about 80 advances in the can. Wow. Uh, I still have byons from time to time. You know, when, when I have one is, of course, in the lap of the gods. But as you can see with James Randi, I had a, one of a remarkable woman earlier this year uh, named Katherine Johnson, who was one of the black mathematicians who worked for NASA. Her story was told in the wonderful movie Hidden Figures and the book on which that was based by Margot Shetterly. So... Um, they come up maybe a half a dozen, a dozen a year. And what's wonderful is I don't have to do anything. I have the sense that I've left enough milk out for the elves and they put a fully reported and written story in the paper under my byline. It's like magic. I wish I was 20 years ago. So I, I have some more questions. I've shouted where I keep jumping around in my head. All right, first of all, how has PC affected the obituary business. For instance, um, I saw one thing somewhere that you you kind of you you wrote about somebody having been a lesbian um, when it was uh, I think I read against the wishes of the the person who died, um, uh, and but that led me to thinking, especially now with the trans issue so hot and the issue of dead naming and all that, 
how would you handle a trans obituary? What if the, like Bruce Jenner, let's say, or uh, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, how well, do you handle? But, I'm not running in the department, but I think any journalist worth his or her salt, and it, um, the headline would be Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, that, well, actually, we have- But then telling the story about Bruce Jenner, how would you, you know? Well, listen, uh, of, I think the, um, the ethic now is to call this person Caitlyn even during the Olympic years, but to explain, we have a case in point that ran just a week or two ago, the great writer, Jan Morris, who was born James Morris and was one of the very first and wrote the beautiful, this is a uh, British writer, wrote the beautiful memoir, Conundrum, yeah, that came out, I think, in the 70s. It was a, um, she was one of the very first people to have gender reassignment and uh, one of the even more very first to write a memoir about it. It's a beautiful memoir. And uh, I wasn't involved in this opit, but I believe the writer, the headline, of course, said Jan Morris. The lead paragraph said Jan Morris, who wrote about X, Y, and Z. The gender, gender reassignment wasn't even mentioned till lower down because what transcends everything in importance is the number of books she wrote, her importance as a writer, a traveler, a thinker, and the gender reassignment had its place because of course we have to explain to people why in the minds of some readers there may be confusion about is it Jan or is it James. So it has to be explained but you can do that in a sentence, in a clause. Yeah. I just feel like um, there's so many landmines now, the, the least of which would be, you know, to, what name to use, but just, um, it just seems like people always find, them, find themselves getting in trouble when they talk about this stuff, but people who never thought they would get in trouble, you know, um, but maybe I'm... Well, uh, being a journalist of any kind in the age of social media, and, you know, particularly since the Twitter explosion is like, you know, working stark naked in Macy's window at high noon in the days when Herald Square would have been thronged with people. Um, and to be honest, it's, there are some journalists who are very thick-skinned and have developed a comfort level with that. Uh, I may be a little less thick-skinned than one needs to be in this day and age, because when something like that happens and uh, there's just a tsunami of invective about you, yeah. It's very primal. And you literally, even though, you know, you're highly trained, you have a byline and a major paper, all you want to do is run home, throw yourself, you know, face downward on your bed, pound your little fists and say, everybody's saying really mean things about me. And guess what? They are. Yeah. Danny, Danny understands that. Um, so here it was. It was uh, Debbie Friedman. It's a, I think this is from Wikipedia. I cut and paste without reminding myself where I took it from. Oh, um, dangerous. I know. The Jewish singer-songwriter helped create beautiful folky melodies for traditional players that invigorated blah, blah, blah. Uh, Fox's obituary highlighted these creations and also brought to light the fact that Friedman was a lesbian, a fact known to some that Friedman had preferred to keep private during her lifetime. So that, that's the kind of thing. And apparently it, said, it says here it ignited a debate about whether she had been right to keep it a secret or something like that. Yeah, that I wasn't, I literally wasn't aware of, um, you know, because that was probably, what, 10 years ago. So... I have to tell you, when I started the Obits job in 2014, I literally thought naively that I would be like one of these major league ball players that claims they remember every single at bat they had in a 20 year career in the majors. And 
it instead the reverse is true because you have this intense communion with someone you inhale their life sometimes you only have an hour if it's a late breaking daily story you exhale it onto the page you're totally exhausted and if i had a nickel for every time i came home and said to my husband i wrote about the most fascinating person today and he'd say who was it and i'd say i can't remember i could have <laughs> retired long ago so i'm afraid it's very difficult for me to comment on a story that's one of you know 14 or 1500 obits i wrote and 10 years ago to boot i am so happy to hear you say that because uh i'm, I'm moving up on 60 and i have trouble remembering names now from time to time and uh and this entire interview i've been thinking to myself this woman's memory is amazing like she's whipping <laughs> off names and like, like so just to hear you admit to having the same human problems that i do is, is i'm gonna make you feel, feel really, really bad i'm the exact same age as you <laughs> so your memory is uh, you did make me feel bad i know I, that, that was my plan all along well how is your how well let's let's talk, talk about it um 58 year old to approximately 58 year old what uh oh, i'm 59 and a half so uh, that's how fucking good my memory is how is your memory day to day i can't remember <laughs> um how is my memory day to day? I think that like everyone, you know, I have lockdown, lockdown brain, COVID brain a little bit. Um, I was, uh, my husband and I were ill all spring oh, and sorry. summer, probably with a mild version of the virus, mild, thank God. Uh, I say probably because we, thank goodness, were not sick enough to be hospitalized. And at that time, you couldn't get a test unless you were, of course, it had to be reserved for those people. So we'll never really know. We're fine now. But um, I think just even not being sick, just the onerous conditions of lockdown, you know, can make one a little stupid and forgetful. But I also think that spending a decade uh, as a deadline writer for a daily paper means you sort of have to keep yourself razor sharp. And I think it's, um, you know, there's probably something going on neurologically that doing that reinforces memory because um that said you can't depend on memory when i uh, teach young journalism students i will say do not rely on your memory for anything because if you put something in the paper without checking it because you think oh i know that it will inevitably be wrong and i tell them you have to look up everything above the level of george washington was the first president president and if you're tired you should look up that I mean, I, I, I can remember a Mary Tyler Moore show I saw in 1976 but, and have trouble remembering a movie I saw yesterday. It's really but that's exciting. the classic difference between long-term memory and short-term memory. And people our age, uh, you know, I'm no neurologist, but anecdotally, it, it's pretty clear it's the short-term memory that most of us are having difficulty with. The long-term stuff sticks around. That, that's in the cloud. It's frustrating as hell. It, it really, it really upsets me. I used to fancy myself someone who could hold his own, maybe even on Jeopardy, maybe not win, but definitely could, you know, be in the, if, if I got the questions the right way, maybe. And now Who's I don't Who's going to be I, the host now? Oh, I know. Oh, did, you, did, question. Did, did you write his obituary? No, no. Um, no, I was long gone by then. Do you have your own obituary? Is, is your obituary in the can somewhere in the New York Times? Uh, Vault? I very much doubt it because um, 
we're very often asked, is there an age at which you start looking at potential subjects for advances? And there's no, it's case by case, but because our staff is small, um, you know, we would very rarely look at someone under the age of 80, you know, people, middle class, upper middle class people live fairly long these days, unless we heard someone had a dread disease or they were a rocker because then they'll OD or die in a plane crash at 27. It's always 27. I, okay. Any more questions about obituaries, by the way, because I have some other, I have, I have some linguistic questions um, also as well. I was waiting to get back to Chomsky. Oh, go ahead. Well, this is my, this is my question. I noticed, I read a lot on the Kindle now, and it's changed me when I was younger, because I guess I was a little like, um, I don't know if it's ADD, but just without patience, I very seldom looked up words that I didn't know when I was reading. I would read through them. I would get a gist for them, but I really didn't know what they were. I mean, I guess I did pretty well on my scores and stuff. I, I picked up a lot of them, but now with the Kindle, you can just hold the word down. Mm -hmm. And it gives you the definition. And this has been a tremendous, it's almost a life changer for me. I mean, because I'm really enjoying and learning new words now. And also, you, the Kindle has a feature where you, it'll test you. It keeps track of all the words that you've looked up. And then you can take flashcards and it'll test you to reinforce what you've learned. But your vocabulary. That sounds horrible. No, it no, it's absolutely awesome. horrible and draconian and a way to destroy the pleasure of reading by turning it into an exam. But that, that's just me. Well, but that's what I want to ask you. Your vocabulary is amazing what is it uh, uh um somebody called you a lexical super maven and I mean, I, i'm reading i'm just reading every single one of your obituaries the vocabulary is wonderful how did you how did you develop that vocabulary uh being of my generation did you take the time to look up words you or was it just they just you just knew what they meant in context in a, in, in a better way than other people did how did you well, know? I'd love to say I just knew, but of course that would be a complete lie. Uh, I had the, I was both lucky, uh, let's say lucky enough for the purposes of this discussion to grow up in an academic family. My father was a college professor. My mother uh, taught writing. So that kind of discourse was in the air. Uh, and when I, when I lectured to undergraduates, um, I'm sort of very, very conscious of being, you know, we're the tail end of the baby boom, you and I. So people spoke differently. Our parents spoke differently. Um, so I grew up with pretty erudite speech, you know, that was sort of in the air from my parents and their academic friends. And of course, in a fix, there's rogers.com. So the thesaurus is online. Uh, my original training, even before I was a linguist was as a cellist. And so without even being conscious of it, I think I'm still very, very passionate about having a, a piece, even an obit in a daily paper, read as though it were through composed, like a piece of art song. So I'm very conscious of the weight and not only the meaning, but the weight and the meter and the cadence of each word. And then from that, each sentence, from that, each paragraph. And so if you're in a fix and you have a word that works semantically, but maybe doesn't give you a good meter, Roger's to the rescue. You just plug in that word and see which of the synonyms give you better poetry. And I've yeah, done that many a time on deadline. 
So um, that's my dirty little secret, I'm afraid. There's nothing to it more than that. We had the gen geneticist, Robert Plowman, uh, mm -hmm. on, and he would, he would say that, uh, you, that it wasn't your environment with your parents, that you just inherited your parents' gift for, for language, but who knows, right? It's, it's got to be both. I mean, it's clearly both because, of course, you know, the language instinct, as your pal Pinker calls it, is hardwired in, yeah. but we know from the so-called forbidden experiment that Herodotus wrote about, that's not enough. You have to have exposure too. And if God forbid you took a pre-baby and put him, you know, in a room with and fed him, but put him in a room with no speech, he'd never acquire language. And occasionally there are these terrible natural experiments with these isolated, deprived children. And even when they're rescued, they don't develop language if they're yeah. over their yeah. age. They don't imprint. Who is a better cellist, uh, uh, Pablo Casals or Yo-Yo Ma? They can't be compared because they're really from different generations and different eras of playing. Uh, the cellist I really loved, he was sort of the one whose recordings I grew up with, was the great uh, French cellist Pierre Fournier, who's very cool, very elegant. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of schmaltz in his playing. He, he, he's of that Casals generation. Uh, but I think the whole approach to playing is very different in uh, our generation and the one after. I, I know this, you know, you know Perry, I'm, I was going to say this because I know um, it's just interesting to me, but if you feel that our listeners won't stomach it, we can take it out. But um, I, I grew up with, I had this great record of Pablo Casals conducting Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Mm. And, you know, the, the second movement is a cello movement. It's, a, it's all, you know, it's that, that and... I thought, and, and I listened to maybe 20 other versions of it after that to compare, and I thought his was by far the best uh, conducting of, best rendering of that movement. And I guess because he, the cello, he was a cellist, you know. It's interesting. I think also there's that, and also we're so profoundly swayed by what we grow up with. You know, if it's the first instance of yes. something we've heard. Only yesterday I had on... Um, uh, QXR and they played uh, Saint-Saëns Carnival of the Animals. It was perfectly fine, but I thought, I'm not enjoying this. And the reason I wasn't is it wasn't the recording I grew up with that had um, conducted by Leonard Bernstein that had uh, Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra on the flip side. And yeah, that's the only reason. Yeah, I just, bought, I just bought the whole DVD set of it, Leonard Bernstein's Young People um, concerts, you know, the TV show he did to teach young people music. I, might, I know I have to strap my kids into to watch something at that pace, given what they're used to on YouTube now. Anyway, and, and the final thing, what is this? When do you change a, a comma into a semicolon? A semicolon is a very peculiar uh, piece of punctuation. I use it just by gut instinct, but I'm never quite sure if it's right. Well, now that I'm not doing that for a living, I can tell you me too and pretty much everyone. There are rules for it. Uh, one of my colleagues... Uh, on the Times Book Review copy desk, Patricia T. O'Connor actually wrote a wonderful grammar book called Woe Is I, and she has a whole chapter on punctuation. And she was actually, on the success of that book, was actually able to leave the paper and write books full time. So as, I, I got to get that. I'm, I'm into that stuff. I, I think somehow with age and slowing down, I'm beginning to enjoy things that I just didn't have the patience for when I was younger, like vocabulary and grammar and, and even even uh, reading fiction. I never had the patience to read fiction and now I actually really enjoy reading fiction. It's I'm changing with age. All right, anything you know, else? Go ahead. I don't, I don't know you very well, but if you're enjoying thinking about 
semicolons. Your life is very sad indeed. <laughs> That's what lockdown does. It's come to this. <laughs> it is. Listen, you're saying that, but I know, I know I don't believe you because you probably love that stuff. Oh, no, I couldn't give a rat's ass about the semicolons. Really? Well, okay. Fair enough. Not anymore. They're not paying me to think not about anymore. it anymore. All right. Uh, gentlemen, any other questions you'd like to ask Marguerite before we uh, allow her? Release her from our clutches? Yeah, before we release her. I love this conversation. This is great. Oh, well, it's been so much fun for me, too. When uh, Periel contacted me, as you know, I said, live from the comedy cellar? I'm not, I'm not a comic. I'm not funny. Are, are you sure? I was absolutely convinced you had the wrong person. So thank you for bearing with me. No, you actually said to me, yeah. you told me that um, some people who had reached out to you sort of had some idea that this, that they were rude or they thought, I, I was so horrified by what you said, actually. I was very reassured by your answer. I was, Aww, we journalists have learned to be careful um, in this age of kind of online, quote-unquote, journalism. I mean, there's real journalism there. But, of course, with social media and blogs, anyone can hang out a shingle and call themselves a journalist. And so we have to be very careful with requests to interview us. And I've been burned by a couple of so-called hipster publications, both with really famous names, which I will not reveal, that pretty much set up obis, obit writers as... Um, punching bags to be made fun of. So I've just learned to be wary of requests from people I don't know. So apologies, because this was really great. No, fun. not what, at all. I actually, is, hold I on, actually, this is interesting. Why, why would they, why would they, like what would they come at you for as an obit writer? What was their angle? Just I think just because I'm a boomer and they're, you know, whatever, they're millennials. Uh, and so, because they can, because I'm old yeah. enough to be their mother because I trained in print journalism, because I know who Edward R. Murrow was, you know, any of that stuff. It's a, and because they're trying to make a name for themselves in this very, very crowded field of so-called hipster, edgy journalism. And they feel that the way to be edgy is to twist the knife. And historically, you know, it's very easy to make fun of someone who you imagine does nothing but think about death and write about death. And the point I will make till I'm blue in the face and that we've all made tacitly here is maybe one sentence in a, in a bit of a thousand words is about someone's dying and the other, you know, however many hundreds and hundreds of words are about the life. So if, that, that was my, I wanted to ask you about that. This is actually maybe ties it all together. Um, Gilbert Gottfried and I had worked for a while on this idea that he had, um, which was to take his famous comedian friends um, and sort of plan their funerals together. Mm. And so in, it was an idea for this show where he would essentially be celebrating their lives um, in a way that most people generally only experience or don't experience after they've passed away. And so it seems that, you know, people say all these beautiful things about you after you die. Um, those are eulogies more than obituaries, right? 
Sure. I mean, Marguerite made that distinction very early on, right? You said Although if it's Gilbert Gottfried, what you're describing sounds closer to a roast than a eulogy. <laughs> and of course, you know, the most brilliant word on this subject was by the greatest humorist of them all, Mark Twain. He had Huck and Tom go to their own funerals because he absolutely had his finger on the pulse of the human psyche which is we all want to know what's going to be said about us and ironically most of us are not there to see it you should be on television you should you should have a, a, a you know a, a an ad hoc uh, whatever it is a, a, like on on 60 minutes something doing camera on camera obituaries for people you're you'd be fantastic you you'd speak so well you're, you i think you'd be a great broadcaster from your mouth to God's ears. Wouldn't that be oh, great? Like a little segment, you know, whenever, like like um, Andy Rooney type thing or something. I don't know. Here's who croaked this week. <laughs> I guess we have to call it something slightly classier than that, right? No, it would be great. It would be great. Oh, my, my friend Steve, he's here, and he's, he thought that if you write a book, it should be called um, Wakeopedia. <laughs> uh, yeah, that my my great grandfather, the rabbi, would be spinning in his grave for me to be writing about wakes. But uh, indeed, indeed. But you know, I'm really out of the game now, except yeah. for the few advances that the gods of advance obits decide to put in the paper of mine. Uh, I just write books now. Uh, my uh, narrative nonfiction book, Conan Doyle for the Defense, about a real life wrongful conviction for murder that Arthur Conan Doyle solved by turning detective himself. That wow. came out in paperback last summer. I just finished another narrative nonfiction book that's coming out in June, and I'm starting the one after that. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a busy girl. That should be a movie. Well, uh, since it's been announced in the trades, I can tell you that the Conan Doyle book has indeed been optioned. Uh, they have a terrific young screenwriter. They've been kind enough to let me vet the screenplay since I'm the EP on the movie, and uh, it's going along great. Of course, COVID has pretty much shut down the industry, but God willing, you know, that's all going to come back in 2021. That's exciting. amazing. That story is done. All right. Um, I guess we should let Marguerite go. Like, I, if you were. I, um, maybe after COVID, you can come down to the Olive Tree or the Comedy Cellar. We get to meet you in person because I feel like I can speak to you for hours. It's so interesting. I would love that. Back at you, all of you. That would be so, you know, well, we would say next year in Jerusalem. So let's say next year at the Comedy Cellar. Oh, that'd be wonderful. All right. Are, are we going to continue without her for a few minutes? We can, yeah. Uh, okay. So I guess we can uh, allow her to sign off. Um, I will sign off. Thank you so much. This was great fun. And Thank to you so much. My pleasure till we meet again. The fantastic Marguerite Fox. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. Danny, you, 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 were, you didn't say much. Well, it was great. I mean, I loved it. I was listening and it was amazing. Uh, I never I heard you that quiet. Uh, I, think she, I think she's awesome. It was, a yeah. lot of, it was a lot of intellectual talk. So I was like, <laughs> jump in. But I'm like, you know what? One, one, I, I can only sound stupid once in a box. <laughs> once, you know, I don't want to... I didn't think you sounded stupid at all. I was right there with you. I don't know if that says more about me or more about you. But she's great. She's very likable and really smart. So like smart, right? Yeah. Yeah. You should, you should read some of her obituaries. They're so good. Yeah, I bet they are. I bet. And I guess so paranoid. I'm just looking it up now. Like I said, you can have an ad hoc segment 
I, and I say, well, did I use that ad hoc wrong? <laughs> but, um, uh, but I didn't. It means when necessary or needed, which is exactly precisely what I meant to, to say. But uh, it's scary when you talk to somebody that you know is just more knowledgeable than you are. Is catchy. that how you feel when you talk to me? No, I'm, strangely, I feel very <laughs> confident when I speak to you. It's very fluid, you know. But, but when I speak to somebody like her, I was like, oh, fuck, don't use the wrong word. Yeah, you know, I feel very comfortable in, in, in that kind of company. And I don't think of myself as someone who's very smart or an intellectual, but I like sitting in on intellectual talk. I enjoy it a lot. I, you would think, I, you know, I, I would be bored, but I'm, I don't get bored. I love it. But I'm really not that smart. <laughs> I don't get really... I, 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 I think it's most, most of all intimidating when it's somebody who um, is an expert at language. That, that really gets me a little nervous. Mm, right. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I had too much coffee. But anyway. I, I, uh, don't, fe I don't feel nervous. I, feel I know that, Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, he's watching the whole thing off camera. And he, he's just like nodding his head, nodding his head. I, she didn't answer my question, though. And I didn't want I'll to, answer for you. What yeah. was the question? I didn't want to push it because I didn't know if she just, you know, just didn't want to answer it, which is there is something macabre about doing that, right? And I am curious if there is, I mean, and I mean, there's a fascination in this culture with that too, right? I don't think so, because it's not macabre. It's about, you're, you're really talking more about their entire life than the right. death and the lead up to the death and how they died. That would be macabre, but she Right, does right. Okay, fair enough. Macabre. Right. But I, I'm, I, just, I'm just wrong. It was a dumb question. It was a stupid question. <laughs> she, she was being kind. Right. <laughs> she was just being gracious to me. I mean, she's a cello and she's a cello player. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not even sure you use macabre right. <laughs> what, what, what do you think it means, Marielle? <laughs> it's an attraction to um, d things that are dark. But, but I, love, I love the take on that. I love an obituary like that would be macabre and not uh, talk about their life, but only talk about their death, how they suffered. Right. That, would be, that would be like a crazy kind of obituary. I mean, that, that's funny. That's amazing. Right? Uh-huh. Because <laughs> you know, it would be like, oh boy, like there's no hope. There's nothing like, you, you don't really... You don't know anything about the person except how much they suffered and how they died, how they were tortured and all that. And you're like, oh boy, that's really sad. You know, there's nothing, you know. Uh, and then there's just like the one line at the very end. And he invented the pink flamingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love to have a list of the people who are important enough to have a, a, an obituary in the can. Like that's, mm. that's, that's a prestigious group to be in. Well, she told you basically, if you're like a world leader or royalty or like a Hollywood, you know, screen star. Well, I'm sure Paul McCartney has one. Right. Uh, I'm sure, I bet you like Watson or Crick or whichever one of those guys is still alive has one. You know, like there's, very, there's various people who, who are important enough that they have one. I guess old enough also. You have to get, I guess, I mean, what, do you even, like, do you even start thinking of someone uh, like when they're 50? 55? No. You probably wait till they're 65, 70, no? I think, it, I think it like Putin probably has one. Yeah. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi better have one. 
<laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg probably had one. Oh, we should have asked about her. We should have asked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was I was taken by the fact that she um that she hinted that she was had far left politics. I don't want to ask her. I mean, she didn't hint at it. She flat out said it. Yeah. All right. Um, I, would I, love like how, I love how tolerant you are of her far left wing politics, but me, you'll just like eviscerate. Well, we, I, we didn't bring her on here to talk about her politics. But how does it make you feel that somebody who you think is so intelligent and so interesting agrees with me politically? I don't know how to answer that. Yeah, how bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would like to, I hope we do get to meet her. I'm curious to know. She's probably not um, as far left as, as you think she is. But um, in any case. Um, all right, I guess, I guess that's it. Uh, Steve, Steve wants to know what you thought of um, his title, Wikipedia. Very clever. All right, Periel has a new, oh, God. a new weekly comedy show she does on Zoom. It's called uh, We're Not Okay. And I it it's, it yeah, what, go ahead. It features her, Jessica Kirsten, and Rachel Feinstein. Yes. And um, it's, a, it's a real, like, waiting to exhale for white girls type thing. But uh, I don't was, know it, what that means. It's like, it's like a, you know, how would you explain what I'm saying, Danny? Waiting to exhale. So um, what is it like? Uh, it's not a, not, a, not a guy bashing. <laughs> but, you know. There's a bunch of white girls talking about their problem, you know, talking to each it, it's white. It's for, for, from white girls for white girls. Seems like a fucking <laughs> just ringing endorsement, huh? But no, but, but but I have to say, I watched one episode of it and it was really good. It was really, really good. I didn't get to see the second episode, um, but it was really good. So I would encourage everybody, how can they find it, Periel? They can go to We're Not Okay Comedy Show on Instagram, or they can just come to Periel Ashenbrand on Instagram and find it. And I would, I'll say this. First of all, that's very kind of you. Um, you know, I take it as a big compliment when you like anything just because you hate everything. So oh, and you know, and you know, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. No, I, I do I know didn't that. mean it. It's, yeah. um, I mean, I'm only even, even just the fact that I, I was obviously so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even hide it. I'm like, you know what? It was really good. <laughs> I got, I got to admit. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, it's really. He said you should call it my three yentas. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> it's really, um, you know, it's what it's like this show in a way that I mean, you're getting, It sounds cheesy, and but I'm being really genuine when I say it. It's that I can't believe like how lucky I am to get to do that because it's such a thrill, and they're so brilliant and hilarious, and um, it's especially during quarantine. This show, um, which everybody knows how much I love the podcast, and also now that it's really, you know, something to keep you sane during this, you know, really difficult time. Oh, stop with that stuff. Serious. Um, and seeing Danny's beautiful, sweet face also. Wait, Danny, can, so Christmas and Hanukkah are coming up. And I do have to say this. I mean, everybody knows that Danny is, a brilliant and hysterical comedian, but I don't know how much they know about all of your other talents. Um, yeah. 
And, I mean, uh, no, really, it's remarkable. You, you know his stenciling, that he does these paintings and stencils on walls and- You, you know we're trying to hold an audience here, right? <laughs> the fuck are you going? What are you doing now? <laughs> I make ties. <laughs> This is, this is also going to become like a, a phone conversation here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're doing a show, you idiots. This is supposed to be for, this is not for us. Uh, you want to plug Cohen, something to Danny's, do it quick. Yeah, dannycohentides.com. <laughs> Great for Christmas, Hanukkah. They're made in New York, and you're going to love them. Danny Cohen Ties. Oh, you know, in this really terrible time. It's very, it's very tough. Hanukkah, you know the holidays are coming. You spent 30 so, minutes talking about a semicolon. Show your fucking tie. Show, show us a tie, Danny. Show us a tie. Okay. Danny Cohen's ties. No, the other one. This is one of them. Got a little, I embroider on all of my ties. So this is the frog. All right. The frog that again. is it. Oh. These are, I, there's another tie that you had too that you showed a couple um, couple months ago that I really like. Danny Cohen ties. Um, I make them in New York, made in New York. They're $66. And uh, they're fun. They're great. They're really unique. They're all embroidered. And uh, so they're beautiful. And, um, you know, I know nobody's wearing pants these days. It's like a ridiculous time to sell a necktie. No one's going <laughs> to the office anymore. No one cares about neckties, but I'm selling neckties. So we're in a pitch. My, 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 uh, my, my kids had parent-teacher conference today. And um, apparently I'm a very good writer. <laughs> and I'm very good at math. Because uh, they they complimented the 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 work that the kids are handing in, but I think I think I'm probably a little too heavy-handed about correcting it. But anyway, okay, we're done here. Nobody <laughs> mentioned my new microphone. Oh my god! What about your new microphone? It's amazing. No one got me a microphone. I bought I bought her a microphone. Save it for my three yentas. <laughs> yeah, save it for my three yentas. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. You can um, follow us at Live from the Table, and you can send your questions, comments. What's the email, Noam? Podcast at ComedyCellar.com. Podcast at ComedyCellar.com. Danny, where can everybody find you? Danny Cohen Comedy Instagram. You know, Danny, you should get a mic, too. Oh, now, really? that I, now that I'm hearing how much better Periel sounds with a mic. I'll get one. Uh, I, I think yeah, you should get one. They're not expensive. Okay. Maybe you can barter. Maybe you can barter a couple of ties uh, yeah, at PC Richards. Huh? All right. That's what I can do. It was <laughs> great seeing you too. Miss you. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Oh, you know, actually, and you should check. If you really want a, a dose of Danny Cohen, you should follow him on Facebook because he goes live. How many times a week do you go live? You know, like three times a day. Three times a day, and he's hysterical. I'm telling you, you think uh, three enters is funny. I mean, this is. This, <laughs> Danny Cohen's Facebook uh, live is gold. This, uh, I hope you're recording all of them because this should be, they should all be on YouTube. I delete all of them. Uh, Why? Because they're live. You catch them or they're gone. That's it. I they are. Care. He does it on Instagram too. They're wonderful. Wait, can you get Steve in this frame for a second? Yeah. Well, I'll, have to, I'll have to zoom it out a little bit for the big head. Be um, go ahead. No, because before COVID, wait, no, I'm come back. Is that room for both of us? Go ahead. Well, yes, there is. He can sit on your lap. Okay, go ahead. We okay. were talking about doing. Hi, Steve. We we've we've captured Steve. We're keeping him in Westchester. Um, called stupid. Remember? Yeah. Oh, stoop. Noam, remember? No. Talk stoop. Uh.
we were going to hang out. Danny and I were going to hang out on the stoop with Steve and oh. do like five minute segments of what was going on outside the cellar. I love that idea. I think it's great. All right, get on it. All right, I think we should go now. <laughs> Fine, goodbye. I like my three yentas. Stay with that. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah, you, you guys should play like matchmaker or some really Jewy uh, filler on the roof music before you start. You, you're welcome to um, contribute your musical talents. Uh, you, uh, okay, go ahead, hang up. Hi, Dan. Hi. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Thank you.